Man, it's good to see all y'all today. If you're a guest, I'm David. We're glad you're here. I'm the pastor. Got a little snow. They warn y'all ahead of time. That's going to happen to you, man. Don't worry about it. It's not slippery. In fact, it's sticky. So if you hear this squishing sound, it's my feet sticking to whatever that stuff is. That's pretty cool. I said, hey, can we do snow this year? I'm like, why not? You know, we do everything else. Let's do a little bit of that, too. It's Christmas. We do what we want. Celebrating Jesus. However we can celebrate Jesus, that sounds good. We're going to honor God and worship him. I mean, this, this is such an important time. Because we celebrate one of the essential, absolutely necessary doctrines of our faith, the incarnation of Christ. I mean, this, this is, I mean, everything else is because of this. Everything else in Christmas is because, I mean, in, in Christianity is because of the birth of Jesus. And what we need to realize is this was always told it was going to happen to some degree. As I share with you, the Old Testament promises something, the New, the New Testament fulfills it, and Jesus tells us that. I mean, Matthew, as I've shared with you in each of the services and messages so far this month, Matthew reminds us, he, in the book of Matthew, 5th chapter, 17th verse, Jesus said, I didn't come to do away or abolish or destroy the law of the prophets. That means the, the, the scriptures, the Old Testament. He goes, I didn't come to do away with that. I came to fulfill it. Jesus himself said, everything that's in what we call the Old Testament, what he called the scriptures, because that's all they had, he fulfilled all of that. Peter and Paul understood that. Peter, early on in the life of church, Peter, Peter's in the home of a, Jew, of a Gentile. Understand, Jews never went into the home of Gentiles until they became followers of Jesus. And Peter went into one named Cornelius, and he shared with him the gospel. And right before the Holy Spirit comes, he makes this comment in Acts 10, 43. He says, for in him, that is Jesus, all the prophets bore witness. In Jesus, to Jesus, about Jesus. All of the prophets, that's all of to him, all of what we call the Old Testament, all of it bore witness to Jesus. Paul understood that. He had never been to Rome, but he wrote a book to him. He was going that way, but he wrote a book before he ever went. And at the very beginning, at the outset, Paul says in Romans, he says, I'm called to be an apostle of the gospel of God. The prophets, the prophets wrote about in the Holy Scriptures. I mean, so the prophets foretold that. I mean, all of them, they, they all point to one thing in the Old Testament. Points to Jesus. See, the Old Testament, and this is the thing about our, our series today. The Old Testament says he's coming. He's coming. And the New Testament says he came. And what I want you to see in this series, and what I've shared with you at the beginning of every message, is this. The Jewish scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, point to someone that's a Messiah, who is God's way to save us. Jesus is that Messiah. He fulfills and completes all that God promises for our salvation. Jesus fulfills and completes all that God promises for our salvation. As I share with you, Matthew goes to great lengths to point that out. We have seen so far, he's coming out of Egypt. And he's coming from Bethlehem. And we bring all this to a conclusion today. He's coming in incarnation. Jesus is coming by the incarnation, being God in the flesh. Matthew chapter 1, Isaiah chapter 7. And here's what I want you to see about the message today. The birth of Jesus guarantees the uniqueness of his nature, which is essential for our salvation. The birth of Jesus does something of critical importance. He does what nothing else can do. It guarantees us the uniqueness of his very nature, which is absolutely essential for our salvation. 
So I'm going to begin the message today talking about the virgin birth, because that's really what matters. And we talk about the virgin birth, we're really talking more about the virgin conception, because his birth was normal, but we just call it the virgin birth. <clears throat> Excuse me. And it's what we celebrate at Christmas. We celebrate the incarnation, Jesus becoming flesh, God becoming flesh, of the great four great truths, great pillars of, of our faith, of the Christian faith. Two are found in the Old Testament, that God reveals himself, Revelation, and that God created, creation found in Genesis 1.1. Two are found in the New Testament, the resurrection, which we celebrate at Easter, and the incarnation we celebrate now at Christmas. Long time ago, almost 30 years ago, uh, early in, in my ministry, I've been in ministry about 12 years, and uh, I was about 31, something like that when this happened, maybe 32, a little older. And uh, I was at me, I was the pastor at First Baptist Laredo, hadn't been there hardly at all. And, you know, in the Southern Baptist Convention at that time, if you're not Southern Baptist, you really don't care about it. We were just going kind of through a shift, and there were some meetings, a group of people thinking about breaking away. And, and these were highly respected people that I, that I thought a lot of, and they were having a meeting. And so I went to the meeting and hear the leader of this national group thinking about breaking away. And there were people there far wiser than I asking questions. And the questions they were asking and the answers they were giving were kind of making me a little uneasy. And finally, finally, someone just asked him. He said, do y'all believe in the virgin birth? Because we hear that your group doesn't. And he said, no, I, I believe in the virgin birth. Maybe it's that clear, which is good. But then he made this statement. But the virgin birth was not necessary for Jesus to come. God could have done it some other way. And when I heard that, I was like, you've got to be kidding. How in the world could God have done it some other way other than the virgin birth of Jesus. I mean, the, the virgin birth of Jesus was absolutely essential for who he is. And at that point, I began to realize that in my ministry, I would make sure that every Christmas, that I would make it absolutely clear and teach the virgin birth of Christ. To understand the virgin birth, we need to go all the way back to the 8th century BC, where we have gone for every sermon in this series, back to 700, 750 years before Jesus. And I've shared with you at that time, there were, there were, four, there were several great prophets, but four of them were, were writing prophets. They wrote stuff down. Isaiah, Amos, Hosea, and, and Micah. And Isaiah and Micah focused on what we call the southern kingdom of Judah. They focused on that part of the kingdom of Israel that had still had someone from the line of David a king. And then Hosea and Amos, they tended to focus on that northern kingdom, what's called Israel or Ephraim. And, and when they broke apart from the, from the kingdom of Israel, when they broke apart from all that, their kings never truly worshipped God. I mean, they sort of did, but they, but they really, they just brought in worships of Baal and other forms of worship and kind of combined it. So it was never a true worship of God. Now, in the southern kingdom, they went back and forth. Some of the kings worshipped God and, and did a good job of it, and some of them really didn't. And we come for this purpose of this story, and to this passage and this message, to about 732 B.C. In 732 B.C., the kingdom of Judah was ruled by a guy named Ahaz. He ruled from 735 to 715. Ahaz's father had been a follower of God, Jotham, his king. His grandfather, Uzziah, was a great man of God. His son, Hezekiah, would be a great, great man of God as a king. But Ahaz wasn't. Ahaz was probably the most evil king Judah ever had that any of Israel ever had. He took the, the gods of, of the Syrians and he built an altar to resemble theirs and put it in the streets of Jerusalem. He closed down the temple so that the people of Israel could, and Judah couldn't go worship 
in the temple. He sacrificed his own son, his own son. He sacrificed to the heathen god, the pagan god of Baal. He was a thoroughly evil man. And at this time, he was king. Assyria dominated the world. And the Assyrian king, Tiglath-Pileser III, known as Pul, controlled all of that area. And the king of Israel, a guy named Pekah, and the king of Syria, a guy named Rezin, had decided to rebel against the Assyrians. It was a futile and foolish effort. But in order to do that, they wanted Judah and Ahaz to join them. And Ahaz didn't want to do that. And that was a good move on his part. But instead of appealing to God, he made a huge mistake. He appealed to Tiglath-Pileser III of the Assyrian king and asked him to come help him. And with that in mind, the prophet Isaiah shows up. And they have this encounter that begins for our purposes in Isaiah 7 verse 10. Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz through Isaiah, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Now, ask ask me to show you that I'm going to deliver you. God said, I'm going to deliver you, so ask a sign. Whether you worship me or not, I am still the Lord your God. Make it as deep as Sheol, that is the depths of of death, or as high as, as high as heaven. Verse 12, he says this, But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Now, that may seem kind of pious to us. Well, Ahaz, he didn't want to test, you know, the Lord. I mean, Jesus did that when Satan came and said, test him. He said, haven't you read in Deuteronomy 6? He didn't quote Deuteronomy 6, but haven't you read, do not test the Lord your God? Now, what Deuteronomy 6 means and what Jesus was saying is this. Do not test God from a place of unbelief. Do not lack belief or lack faith in God and saying, God, you prove it to me and I believe you. That was forbidden. But Back in the time when the Old Testament was not even fully written yet, remember, Isaiah hadn't even written Isaiah, so this was before Ahaz had access to all the possible scriptures that they would have in times of Jesus, what we call the Old Testament. It was not uncommon to look for signs and symbols to strengthen and aid your faith. God had given him permission. In fact, God had given him a command, and Ahaz had disobeyed that command. So in verse 13, here's what we see. Listen now, o house of David. Is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will also try the patience of my God as well. It's saying, now you're going to try the patience of God. It's one thing for what you've done to your kingdom. Now you're trying the patience of God. In verse 14, here's what Isaiah said. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear son. And you, she will call his name Emmanuel. Now, here it is. You will get a sign, whether you ask for a sign or not. A virgin is going to give birth to a child. Now, some will say that the word virgin... In, in the Hebrew text, is not just necessarily a technical word for virgin. It's just a word for a young woman, which is absolutely true. Here's what you need to remember. 732 years before Jesus came, in the people of Israel, any young woman of Marian age, 15, 16, 17, was a virgin. It was always understood it was a virgin. I understand. In the world we live in today, we may not make that assumption. Back then, they absolutely could know she was a virgin. So a virgin is the right understanding. She's going to call him Emmanuel. That doesn't have to be his name. But Emmanuel means God, Yahweh, the Lord, is with us. So this child, this whatever, is going to be a sign to you that the God, the Lord, is with you. Verse 15 then says this. He will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. In verse 16. For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. So here's what he's saying. When the eating uh, honey and, and curds was a sign that the child had been weaned from its mother. 
Okay, it no longer was requiring his mother for feeding. To know good and evil is a sign of moral ability, to make moral choices. So what he's saying is this. By the time the child has been weaned from its mother, but before the child can make moral choices, in other words, somewhere in about a three to four year period, these two kings will be defeated and you'll be delivered, and that will be a sign for you. Now, you and I might be thinking, well, why didn't Isaiah just said, hey, Ahaz, in about three years, everything's going to be okay? But that's not the way prophets worked. Remember, the purpose of the prophet wasn't to predict the future. It was to speak the mind of God. When the future came into play, it didn't matter. It was to share, this is what God's going to do. I'm telling you, God is doing something. Now, how did this come about? Who was that virgin? Who was that child? Well, obviously, in the New Testament, we looked at Jesus. But can I just tell you this, that in the days of Isaiah, they didn't think about a Messiah 730 years away. I mean, when you got two kingdoms that are pressuring you to go to war against a bigger kingdom, and either way, you're going to get destroyed, and your life is in danger, and you're going to get wiped out. You don't care what happens 700 years in the future. You care what happens right now. Some say, well, that child was the child of, of uh, Ahaz, Hezekiah, but Hezekiah didn't meet the requirements. Some say one of the kids of Isaiah was that sign. Uh, kids of Isaiah doesn't meet those requirements. The best explanation is simply this. It's not that complicated. In the time that it takes for a virgin today to have her wedding, to get pregnant, to have a kid, and to wean that kid, but before that kid is old enough to make moral choices, and in other words, in about a two to three year period, those kings will be defeated. And here's the thing, that's exactly what happened. Within about three years, those two guys lost. And the nation of Judah was preserved, not through Ahaz, but through God. And here's the thing, you need to realize that what Isaiah is doing is not predicting the future. He's trying to give them hope in God. You see, the prophet showed that God was working in the history of Israel. That's what he was doing. He was showing Israel, I'm working in your world. I am working. I am breaking into your history to save you, however he chose to do it. Which brings us then to the New Testament. When you come some 730 years later, and it's about the time of the birth of Jesus. Please understand that the Jews were looking for a Messiah. But they weren't looking for the type of Messiah Jesus would be. They wanted a guy who was going to come, be a great military leader, and, and deliver them from the Romans and exalt Israel. They weren't looking for a guy who would save the world. And I can promise you, the Jewish leaders weren't thinking about Isaiah 7 at all. And then Jesus comes into this world, and Jesus is completely different than any type of Messiah they were expecting. That, that was their conflict. And what Matthew does is when he writes his gospel, he's writing about 30 years after Jesus ascended. He's seeing Christianity become primarily Gentile and Jews not believe him. And he writes a book, he writes a gospel for Jews. It appeals to everyone, but his primary target is Jews. And what he writes to them, and you and I can't appreciate this, is a radical, radical idea that initially almost all of them would have rejected. That there is this guy who doesn't meet any of the expectations of a Messiah, who is their Messiah. And that's why he starts off in, in Matthew 1.1, the genealogy, the record of his birth. He is the Messiah. He tells them that right off. He's the son of David, the son of Abraham. He is it. And that is why, as we have seen already, he has quoted several Old Testament prophets from the 8th century. And has shown that Jesus fulfills what they have written. Even though one of them, Hosea, 
Nobody would have thought what Hosea wrote applied to the Messiah. Micah, yes, and even Isaiah, no. What we need to realize is that Matthew writes of a Savior who keeps the promise of God. Matthew is writing of a Savior, not the way the Jews thought of him, but the way God thought of him. Which brings us to Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Now, betrothed, in some of your versions, may have engaged. It was an engagement, but it's not like our engagement. In our engagement, in our culture, people get engaged and break it off, no issue. Now, there may be some issues about a ring. I get that, but it's not that. But back then, what they called a betrothal, being betrothed, it was, a re- it was a legal commitment. It was a contract, in essence. So they were legally already married. Now, she did not live with him. She lived with her parents. They did not consummate the relationship yet. That would come later. But this was a legal relationship. And the only way that it could be broken was through a divorce. I mean, you had to get a divorce. And the only really acceptable means of a divorce in that stage would have been infidelity. That would have been something they may have been concerned about. So we were told she has been, had a child. And we were told by this by the Holy Spirit. Now, we don't tell the process. And Luke, same thing happens. Luke tells us the story of the birth from the standpoint of Mary. And when we see that the, Holy, that the angel came, said you're going to be with the child, and the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. There's no details given. No need to be. It's just a very delicate way of saying that. And her, Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. So Joseph was righteous. And as a righteous man, he had an obligation to divorce. That was what he was supposed to do. He just he didn't want to humiliate her. Now, we may ask, how in the world did Joseph know she was pregnant? We don't know. And there's, I'm amazed at the great lengths people go to try to explain how. It's really simple. At some point, she told him. When she had the time, she left for a few months to go see Elizabeth, and she came back. She can't keep her pregnancy long, secret for long. Sooner or later, she's going to be found out. I mean, you may not realize it. Two of the three girls who sang today, who helped lead in worship, are pregnant. You probably can't tell, but sooner or later, you're going to. You may say, which two is it? It's the two married one. It's not the single one. I'm promising you that right now. And if you say which two are married, well, come back in three or four months and you'll find out. <laughs> one of them had a gender reveal yesterday. It's some big thing. I think they're having a... Okay, my wife told me what they were having. It's a girl, right? Who saw that? It was a girl. I think it was, it was either a girl or a boy. It was one of the two. <laughs> the other one hasn't revealed the gender. I don't know why. I guess she's like, we're going to wait several years. I don't know what they're doing, you know? But sooner or later, you're going to find out. Find, and, and, and Joseph is going to know. So she told him. And so he decided to put her away quietly. Verse 20. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take her as your wife. And because the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. The angel told him about the Holy Spirit, not, not Mary. Could you imagine? Why didn't Mary tell him? Yeah, right. Like he was going to buy that, right? He wasn't going to believe that. She didn't tell him anything. She left it up to God. Somehow she knew that God would take care of it. And so God, through the angel, said the Holy Spirit. And so in verse 21, here's what we're told. She will bear a son. He was told. And you will call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from his sin. There's going to be a son. And he's going to be Jesus. Which is a kind of a shortened ver- version of Jehoshua. And, and, and it's, you know, Joshua, Jesus, Hosea. It means the Lord will save. Yahweh will save. He, and the reason is he's going to save people from their sins. He's, he's not saving them from Rome. He's not, he's not saving them, you know, from some other power. Their problem is sin. 
They rebelled against God. He's going to save them, deliver them, rescue. In, in the New Testament, the word save is almost always associated with spiritual salvation. He will do that. His people. Who are his people? Well, right then it was Israel. But we know later on, everybody who comes to Jesus is part of his people. Anyone who comes to Jesus is part of his people. He's going to rescue them from their sins in verse 22. Now, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. That word fulfill, I talk about it sometimes. We know when, when man, Jesus said, I've come to fulfill, not destroy the, the Old Testament. That's the same word. He, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken in where? In Isaiah 7, 14. Behold, the virgin will be with child and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Jesus is truly God with us. God in the flesh coming to us. And then in verse 24 and 25, here's what we see. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took Mary as his wife, but he kept her a virgin until she gave her to her son, and he called his name Jesus. He kept Mary a virgin to help guarantee the nature of the birth, but she took him, and, and that was it. I mean, she, he, did, he obeyed. And so you have the virgin birth of Christ. And so what you have is God in the flesh. Joseph was the legal father of Jesus, but the Holy Spirit was what we might call the birth father. De Debbie and I adopted our daughter Kelly when she was 10 days old. I am the only father she has ever known. I am her legal father. I'm her father in every sense. But I am not her birth father. I don't even know who that guy is. I don't even know if he's still alive. And so I can give her a lot of things, but I could not give her my nature. Well, Debbie and I like to tease uh, Kelly whenever she got in trouble. It's because you have bad blood. It's not our fault. You can't do anything about it. You know? <laughs> not us. We do did, we did all the good stuff. All the bad stuff comes from whatever. The point is that Joseph adopted him legally. But what the scriptures make clear is Jesus is God in the flesh. That is necessary. Because while man should pay for sin, only God really can do it. The book of Hebrews is a marvelous book. I, I taught that well, a few years back on one, of the, one Friday night in a deep fry that we do. And, and, and if you ever wonder, you know, if, if, you know, I hear people sometimes talk about, well, you know, and, and Jesus comes back and the end, they're going to redo Israel and temples and all that stuff. And if you read the book of Hebrews, it just says no to all that. Book of Hebrews says all that is over. Jesus took care of all of it. All the New Testament says it's over, but the book of Hebrews is so clear. And what the book of Hebrews says about Jesus coming in the flesh is, is so important. In, in Hebrews 2.17, I'm reading from the Amplified Version, which is a translation, but the parenthesis means a little commentary to explain it. Therefore, it was essential that he had to be made like his brothers, that is mankind. In, or today we'd say humankind, I got it. In every respect... So that he might, by experience, become a merciful and faithful high priest in things related to God to make atonement, that is, propitiation for people's sins. And since most people don't know what that means, he clarified, therefore, thereby wiping away the sin, satisfying divine justice, and proving a way of reconciliation between God and mankind. That's what propitiation kind of means. So Jesus did that, but he can only do that by being God in the flesh. So here's the thing. The virgin birth of Jesus guarantees that our Savior is both God and man. He is therefore qualified to save us. It guarantees he's both God and man. He is therefore qualified to save us. God couldn't have done it any other way. The virgin birth of Jesus is necessary for our salvation. It is not, however, necessary that you believe it at the moment you are saved. You know, when I, when I share the gospel with people, I don't talk to them about the virgin birth so they can be saved. After they become a follower of Christ, I expect as they learn it, they believe it. So it is necessary 
for our salvation. Not necessarily for a person to believe and be saved. Which brings us then, as I kind of bring this whole series to a conclusion. The most important part of the Christmas story is understanding the nature of Jesus, who he is. Please get this. The most important part of Christmas is understanding who Jesus is. You need to do that. That's critical. It, and I know we like the Christmas to celebrate the baby and the baby coming. I get that. And that's cool. And we, we, we kind of have this generic aspect of the phrase that the Lord has come. I got it. But the Lord has come is God in the flesh. That's what matters. His nature is important. For without the nature of Jesus, who he is, you can't have the work of Jesus, what he did. Without the nature of Jesus, you can't have the salvation of Jesus. It won't work if he's not fully God. So here's the thing. The virgin birth points to three irrefutable facts about Jesus. They are absolutely, in the Christian world, irrefutable. Now, I mean, people outside of Christ, you know, they want to argue about it. Okay, that's fine. But within our world, Understanding that God has revealed himself in the Old and the New Testament, they're irrefutable. The first is this. He is God in the flesh. Jesus is God in the flesh. Fully God, fully man. Has to be that way. The virgin birth guarantees it. John 1, verse 1 said, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus, the Word, was God. And then in verse 14 says, And that Word, that is Jesus, became flesh. Became something he never was. He became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten, full of grace and truth. We saw, we noticed, we observed. Sean will later write in his first letter, the epistle, 1 John, I touched him, I saw him, I heard him. That's who Jesus is. So how can we ever say there's any other way to come to God? It's, it's, it's mind-baffling. That within the Christian world, that there are people within Christianity think that there are other ways to come to God. How? Who can ever match Jesus? Muhammad doesn't. Islam can't match that. Muhammad didn't even claim to be God in the flesh. Buddhism can't match that. Hinduism doesn't match that. Confucianism, nothing matches that. This is why what you see sometimes in churches today, and I've talked about this so much the last year, it's so important. You see churches and denominations where they are taking away from the uniqueness of Jesus. And some take away from the virgin birth. That's why you hear people say, God could have done it some other way. Because if God did it some other way, then Jesus isn't God in the flesh. And then there can be other ways to God. But if Jesus is God in the flesh, there simply can't be any other way to God. He is God in the flesh. Second, he is the Messiah. What the Old Testament promises, he fulfills. Even the parts of the Old Testament that don't seem like it relates to Jesus. I mean, he just said, I came and I took care of all of it. I don't care what part you want to talk about. In the end, it all points to him. So he is who we call the Christ. We don't use the term Messiah, we use the term Christ. He is the Christ. Peter said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, if he is the Messiah and he is God in the flesh, the third thing to realize is he is our Savior. He and he alone is the Savior. And this really is what Christmas is about. Our Savior has come as God in the flesh. He's come to save us from sin, to deliver us from all the failures and faults, to deliver us from our rebellion against God. And that's why the virgin birth is so important. It provides the safeguard, the guarantee, the assurance, if you will, that he is both God and man. You see, the birth of Jesus guarantees the uniqueness of his nature. 
which is essential for our salvation. Oh yes, he is our savior. The question is whether or not he is your savior. Has he saved you from your sin? And if not, then why not? Why would you not trust God who has come to be man to save you from your sin? I invite you today and encourage you even now to give your life to Christ. In just a moment, when we have our invitation, I'll be here, a couple of others. Ladies, if you would like to talk to another woman, there'll be at least one or two ladies here. You want to give your life to Christ, you can. Maybe you want to come and you're struggling with something. And you just want to pray with somebody at Christmas. Maybe you want to pray for a loved one. I get that. I have a lot of people all the time want to pray for someone at Christmas. I really, in Easter, those two times of the year, I get a lot of people who want to come and pray with me. If you want to come and pray with somebody, someone you love, maybe pray with your own journey, how you're going to share Christ, do that. Maybe you want to come and just spend a few moments just celebrating Jesus. Be sure this Christmas you celebrate Jesus. And in less than a week, we'll have Christmas Day. When you come back here next Sunday, if you come back here, most of you are going to be, oh man, Christmas is over. And we're, all, we're moved on. You know, you know, the day after Christmas, we've moved on. Be sure you celebrate Jesus. If you want to join our church, you can. Whatever you need to do, we'll be here to pray with you and guide you, whatever. But be sure you do this. Be sure you know and you've accepted the one who came to save you. The one who is God in the flesh. The one and only. Noah, Jesus, our Savior. Father, how can we ever say thank you enough for Christ, for your, your love, which is poured out to us, and you became something you had never been. You became one of us. You condescended. You came down to be one of us so that you could save us. Let me thank you. Let me praise you. Now it is our prayer that we would trust Jesus who has come to save us. And we would give our life to him and depend upon him and only him. And in doing so, Father, we would bring you glory and honor. And that this Christmas, we would celebrate the one who has come. And give you the praise and the glory that is yours. In Christ's name, amen and amen. Would you stand? You come. We'll be here.